Welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. I am your host, Lori Jimenez. I created this platform with a sole mission, and that is to inspire people of all backgrounds to create the change they wish to see in their lives and in the world by sharing the examples of those who are. As a listener, you will hear the stories of ordinary men and women with extraordinary stories of overcoming adversities in order to experience the life they dream of. All of these individuals share a common interest. They desire a change for the better, and they are in a relentless pursuit to create that for themselves. If you're looking for inspiration to overcome challenges in your own life, to create a life that you desire to have, then you have come to the right place. You see, the truth is, people everywhere are fighting for what they believe in, and together, with relentless action and mental strength, I have no doubt that we can fulfill that dream. Welcome back to the Relentless Minds podcast. This is your host, Lori Jimenez. This is episode two of the four-episode series covering the stories of genocide survivors in honor of April being Genocide Awareness Month, as well as this being the 26th anniversary of the genocide in Rwanda. In today's episode, I speak with Jacqueline, who is a lawyer, a human rights activist, and the founder of the nonprofit organization Genocide Survivors Foundation, which focuses on the prevention of genocide through educating the public, as well as supporting genocide survivors in various areas of need. Jacqueline is a survivor of the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda in 1994. She was nine years old when the genocide occurred. She had six siblings, the youngest being two months old, a father and mother, all of whom were killed during the genocide. Jacqueline managed to survive, and now in her adult life, she dedicates her life to educating people about how genocide occurs and how we as a society should understand the dangers of discrimination and intolerance as seen in history through genocide. She also highlights the importance of working to build a society that is accepting of all people, regardless of their culture, religion, or race. Let's start the conversation. Jacqueline, thank you so much for being here today. I truly appreciate you taking the time to meet with me. We're here in person in New York City uh, so that we can talk about your story, uh, surviving the genocide in Rwanda, and also now the life that you're living as a lawyer and human rights activist. And I want to talk about also your foundation, the Genocide Survivors Foundation and the work that you're doing with that foundation to spread awareness of what is genocide, how it occurs, and how it affects people. And in addition to that, the work that you're doing to help those survivors. Uh, And so we're going to be learning a lot today. I'm very excited because it's a topic that, honestly speaking, before uh, meeting you and your friends um, and Placide, I didn't know much about I didn't know much about this topic, and I've learned a lot, but there's still some questions, and I want to make sure that um, my audience can really become informed. So thank you so much for being here. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm honored to to be here. So to start off, when it comes to your story as a survivor of the genocide, I want to understand how it was in that time that you were able to survive. Mm -hmm. How were you able to uh, avoid being a victim, one of the hundreds of thousands of victims that mm-hmm. lost their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whenever you speak to a survivor of the, the genocide against Tutsi in Rwanda, most of them, if not all of them, will always tell you that 
we don't know how we survived. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that we survived because the goal in 1994, the goal of the Hutu extremist government was extermination. <laughs> extermination of all Tutsis and any Hutu who was opposed to the genocidal plan. So that any of us survived is really... Uh, it's it's a miracle. Mm -hmm. Some people say it was luck. Some people say it was uh, it was God. You know, it depends on uh, who you ask. But it was a miracle because when you have your own government against you and trying to exterminate you and your own people, when you have your own neighbors, people who you used to go to church with and to school with, attacking you and trying to kill you simply because who you are, it's nothing less than a miracle that you survive in such environment. But my own story of survival is a long one, as uh, is the case with most survivors. But when the genocide started, uh, I happened to be visiting my maternal grandmother. So from the very beginning of the genocide, I was in the same, I was not in the same uh, space with my parents and my uh, six siblings, because I was one of seven children. I was visiting my maternal grandmother in a different village that was about two to three hours away. And one of the first things that the government did when the, the genocide began was to pull roadblocks throughout Rwanda. Mm. Uh, this was done to prevent even those Tutsis who had the means to flee Rwanda from doing so. Because whenever you came across this roadblock uh, and you identified as a Tutsi, either by your ethnic ID card, because we all had ethnic-based ID cards that labeled all Rwandans as either a Hutu, a Tutsi, or Twa. This is an ID system, ethnic ID system that was introduced in Rwanda by the Belgians when the Belgians colonized Rwanda. And as we know, the goal of colonization was divide and conquer. So they divided the Rwandan population. They issued ethnic-based ID cards. So by the time I was born in 1984, I was born in a country where you're not, you're not just considered a Rwandan, but you're either a Hutu, Tutsi, or Twa. So during the genocide, when you came uh, across a roadblock and you identified as a Tutsi, either by the ID or by your physical features, you were taken aside. If you're lucky, you were shot. By most cases, you were, uh, you died very terrible death. You macheted, you were stabbed, you were uh, buried alive. So at the very beginning of the genocide, it became impossible for me to ever go back to my parents' village. So we were separated. And when the killings began in my grandmother's village, um, my grandmother, myself, uh, a cousin who was staying with us, and most of uh, my mother's relatives in that village and other Tutsis in the village, we initially ran away to what would be an equivalent of a county office or mayor's office mm -hmm. uh, here in the U.S. And we ran away there because we thought we'd be protected. We told ourselves that it's our, uh, the adults told themselves, you know, certainly our local officials are going to protect us from our Hutu neighbors who are uh, running after us with machetes. After all, people said, you know, we've been good citizens, we paid our taxes, we've done everything that we were supposed to do. So we went there, people thought they would be protected. But also another reason I think that why a lot of Tutsis uh, run away there and try to uh, run away in, in, in the same place was that hopefully they could put up a resistance. If there were many of us in one spot, hopefully you, could, you were in a better position to fight for your life. Um, so when we got to the county office, my grandmother, myself, my cousin, most relatives from my mother's side, we uh, stayed there for a few days until our Hutu neighbors 
neighbors whose children had grown up playing with, neighbors whose children had grown up going to school with, going to church with, these Hutu neighbors started coming to the county office armed with machetes and clubs, spears, and they would come singing that all Tutsis deserve to die, all Tutsis are cockroaches. And this is a type of message uh, or incitement to kill that they were hearing every day from the national radio. Every day during those 100 days of genocide, Hutu extremist uh, government officials will come on the national radio and they will say Tutsis are enemies, Tutsis are cockroaches, you have to kill urged Hutu civilians, you have to kill your Tutsi neighbors. Uh, they urge them not to have mercy on the elderly, on the, on the children. So the goal was uh, extermination. And while at that county office, I certainly witnessed a lot of death. A lot of my, my mother's uh, side, relatives from my mother's side, actually ended up being murdered there. So when I went to Rwanda a few years later, and I went to that county office, it is now uh, a genocide memorial where it's estimated that more than 26,000 people were murdered there, including most uh, of my mother's relatives. But for me and my grandmother and my cousin, we were very lucky in that uh, we were not there when the final massacre and the final killings uh, happened. And that was because uh, one of my uncles, one of my mom's brothers, who had been a doctor in a different part of Rwanda before the genocide, he heard that we were at the county office, he heard that the killings were taking place every day, and he knew that it would be a matter of time mm. uh, before we were killed. And thankfully, he managed to find a Hutu man who he gave uh, an ambulance from where he had worked uh, previously uh, before the genocide. And this Hutu man came one day, one night, in the middle of the night, and he packed myself and my cousin and my grandmother in the back of an ambulance. And we fled. We left the county office uh, in an effort to try to get to where my uncle was hiding at that time, mm. which was a different part of Rwanda called Nyanza. And thankfully, uh, my grandmother and I and my cousin, we arrived in Nyanza safely. Uh, we were hidden by a Hutu men uh, for about uh, a week or so until we were discovered. Uh, mm -hmm. To this day, we're not sure how the neighbors, the Hutu neighbors who were uh, out killing every day how they found out that we were there but I remember that one morning uh, my grandmother and I and my cousin we heard very loud banging at the door screaming at the Hutu man who was hiding us saying we know you have cockroaches inside your house because Tutsis were referred as cockroaches we know you have cockroaches inside of your house and we're going to find them and we're going to kill them and within what seemed like seconds or minutes we had a group of Hutu men who were on top of us screaming that they were going to kill us and to this day, I always say that it's nothing less of a miracle that we, we survived that, <laughs> that attempt on our lives. But the Hutu man who, had, uh, who was hiding us kept begging them, saying, this is an old woman. My grandmother was in her 60s, and these are children. I was nine, my mm -hmm. cousin was 12. How can you say that these people are the enemy of the country? Yes. But they kept saying, it doesn't matter the age, it doesn't matter the sex. All Tutsis deserve to die. That was the goal. And to this day, I'm not sure how we survived, whether they had mercy, whether they were... You know, it was it was it was a miracle. But they decided to leave us alone. But they said that they told the Hutu men that if they came back and were still there, they would kill us. Mm -hmm. So we knew that we had to leave. And it is at that time, uh, long story short, because again, there's a lot of details that I'm not putting in, in you know in talking about my story because it's a long story. But after that discovery or that attempt in our lives, the Hutu men told my grandmother there was an orphanage mm. uh, nearby, which was owned by two Italian priests. The orphanage had been uh, 
uh, had existed prior to the genocide. And when the genocide began, the Italian priests were among the few foreigners who stayed in Rwanda in an effort to try and protect Addis' children, whose parents were being killed and who were being hunted uh, themselves. So these three Italian priests were taking in children, trying to protect them, but they were not taking in adults, Tutsi adults, mm. because they believed it was uh, taking on a greater risks if they allowed Tutsi adults to come to the orphanage. So as a result, my grandmother would not be allowed in that orphanage, but she knew that if anywhere we had more chances, my cousin and I had more chances of surviving that orphanage because of the foreign presence of the two Italian priests than anywhere else in the country. Mm -hmm. So she begged the Hutu men who was hiding us uh, to take us. And that ended up being the last time that I saw my grandmother. Uh, who had been really like my second mother because she raised me. Uh, I spent a lot of time growing up with her uh, when I was young. And she was, I always say she was my second mom. But that ended up being the last time that I saw her because once we went to the orphanage, my cousin and I, we lost all communication because, again, there were barricades all mm -hmm. over, so we couldn't see her. And uh, it is in that orphanage that my cousin and I survived along with... Uh, 300 plus other children, but even while in the orphanage, we experienced many attacks. There were many attacks uh, at the orphanage where the priests would be told that they were going to separate all the children because there were also some Hutu children in the orphanage who had gone to the orphanage before the genocide, whose parents had died of natural causes, and they were there. Mm -hmm. So whenever the attacks happened, the Hutu civilians who were armed with machetes or the Hutu soldiers who had attacked the orphanage, they would say they were going to separate children along ethnic lines and they were going to kill all Tutsi children. And each time, you know, those attacks happened, and there were many, we thought we were going to be killed. And the Italian priests would beg and they would bribe. So I remember that by the time the genocide ended, we no longer had food at the orphanage because the two Italian priests had used all the food supplies in the orphanage and all the money that they had to bribe these people wow. in exchange for our lives. But it is in that environment that myself and my cousin and, again, 300-plus other children survived. And um, after the genocide, I will come to learn, uh, as you know, that why I had been one of the few who survived, uh, neither my parents nor my six siblings nor my grandmothers, most of my extended family members had survived. They mm -hmm. had all been uh, murdered in those 100 days. Uh, in respect to my own parents and my siblings, I learned specifically that one day during the genocide, my Hutu neighbors had come and had taken them to a nearby river where they had proceeded to murder them one by one and to throw their bodies in that same river. So after the genocide, I never had even the opportunity to find their bodies and to bury them, which is something that is very important to survivors. Those who are able to find the remains of their family members they are able to uh, properly bury them, and they're able to have like a tombstone where they can go and remember them. But for many survivors, even that was uh, deprived, uh, that was taken from us because many people were, who were murdered were thrown in rivers, like my own family, or they are thrown in mass graves where mm -hmm. you will never know who yeah. your family members. So that, that contributes to you know, the, the suffering, the trauma that many yes. survivors you know, still experience today. Thank you so much for telling that entire story. That's a lot that you experienced in that time, you know, along with so, so, so many people. And that's the truth of the matter is that those that saved, that were able to survive, you know, still carry with them so much trauma and so much pain. You know, I was reading um, Consola's memoir and 
she was saying like even just trying to wrap your head around the atrocity Mm -hmm. the inhumanity Mm -hmm. neighbors that you knew growing up that were family friends that Mm -hmm. you felt loved you yeah were out to kill you yeah and you know it's it's something can't understand Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when it comes and i'm actually very curious about this when it comes to your own strength Mm -hmm. you were nine years old at this time yeah how were you able because you were an orphan Mm -hmm. and that's an additional challenge because there isn't someone close that you can then confide in to tell your story and to you know get that support emotional psychological support that someone you trust yeah how did you cope how were you able mentally to keep moving forward Mm -hmm. and not give up Mm -hmm. and say there's no reason to live anymore yeah yeah no you know it's uh it was very difficult and i think it's uh it's an ongoing process because there's really never a time when you forget that you're an orphan and you're an orphan because your family was murdered simply because of uh, who they are and that's something that you know I always emphasize to me genocide is really the greatest crime that human beings can commit against their fellow human beings because to be murdered simply because of who you are because of something that you did not have a choice in being mm-hmm. I didn't choose to be born a Tutsi or mm-hmm. as opposed to a Hutu nobody chooses to be born in, in a Christian family or in a Jewish family this is something that we have no choice in being mm-hmm. so to be murdered and hunted and you know your family uh, being taken away from you because of that it's I, I find that there's really in my opinion no greater injustice mm-hmm. Um, and it's, this is something that I think is very important to, you know, there are all kinds of human rights issues and all kinds of crimes being committed every day in our society. But I always say that's a, that's a, that's a worst. And I think that, you know, during the genocide, one of the most difficult things that happened, as you said, was, you know, the betrayal, the betrayal of the neighbors. Because it would be one thing if, you know, your family was killed by people who you didn't know and it was war and soldiers. But that, that, that trying to come to terms with, again, these people who you said you grew up with, playing with their children, attending the same weddings, the same child naming ceremonies, and these people are coming after you with machetes. So it took me a long time to understand it, but whenever I talk about genocide, it's always important for me to talk about how it happens, what causes Absolutely. it, and it's important for people to, to recognize that people do not get up one day and they want to pick up machetes and want to kill Absolutely. their neighbors. Yeah. This is something that happens in a process. It begins with you know discrimination, as was the case in Rwanda. There was state-sanctioned discrimination against Tutsis. It begins with uh, indoctrination. So in the case of Rwanda, there was a lot of indoctrination by the Hutu-led government in anti-Tutsi propaganda, where Tutsis were always portrayed in Rwandan society as the enemies of the country, the invaders. They said Tutsis had invaded Rwanda a long, long time ago from Ethiopia, and Tutsis were not true citizens like Hutus were. So there was this deprivation of, of, of rights from the very beginning, even prior to the genocide. As the years um, closer to the genocide came, specifically starting in 1990, there was also a huge dehumanization campaign against Tutsis in Rwanda's newspapers and radio where Tutsis were portrayed not just as you know the enemy but they are not being dehumanized and 
portrayed as snakes, mm-hmm. as cockroaches. Mm-hmm. And this is this process of dehumanization is something that you see across the board, whether you're talking about the Holocaust or the genocide in, you know, in, in Bosnia, Cambodia. It's, it's, it, the genocide is a process. Yeah. And I always tell people the best time to really intervene is not when the people have picked up machetes. It's when this dehumanization of any group of people is happening. It's when a group of people is being deprived of basic rights simply because of their religion or their race. This is really the time that we need to intervene in terms of uh, prevention. So trying to understand what had happened to me, especially as a nine-year-old, was very difficult. Uh, I remember that I was plagued with a lot of nightmares, Mm -hmm. as is the case with most survivors. I had a lot of nightmares where I wake up every morning crying because I would see scenes of my family, see myself fleeing from people who were trying to kill me. Um, And that continued even when I came to America. You know, I was very lucky that I had uh, an uncle who lived in the U.S. And after finding out that I had survived, he adopted me. So I came to live in this country when I was 10, a year after the genocide. And those first few years in this country, I struggled trying to come to terms with, with, with my survival. There were even a time when I used to wish that I would have died with my family, where I pref- when I preferred death, because I felt like it was such a big burden at this age to be left wondering, like, why me? There's this thing called survival uh, guilt that most survivors have. It's like, why me? Yeah. You know, I had six why siblings. Me? Why not them? Why not them? I had six siblings. The, lo- the youngest of my sibling was just two months two old, months about two months. During the genocide, I, you know, I used to say, why not Daniel? He didn't even know his name, never mind his ethnicity. Why yes. me? But I think at some point, at least for me, I came to... Uh, to realize that why I may not know specifically why it is that I survived, I realize that having survived, I have responsibility mm-hmm. to educate people about mm-hmm. genocide, to educate people about the type of death that my family and over a million people died uh, in 1994 uh, in Rwanda, and also as a way to honor them yeah. and to memorialize uh, them, but also as a way to hopefully do my part in preventing other children or other human beings who ever have to, to, to experience this. Because having gone through it, I understand that is the worst crime, as I said, and the consequences of that crime is something that all survivors live with. And it's unfortunately something that even our children and grandchildren will mm-hmm. live with. Yeah. Because I'm gonna have, I have a three-year-old daughter now, mm-hmm. and at one time she's going to ask me, you know, what happened to your parents? How come I don't have maternal uncles or maternal aunts? And I'm going to have to tell her that story. So the consequences of a genocide is something that, you know, as research uh, suggests, even with the trauma, there's this thing called intergeneration transmission of trauma that it not only ends with us, unfortunately, but it goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why, you know, I also do the work that I do now with survivors is an effort to try to, you know, minimize or at least address part of that trauma. Mm-hmm. It will never be completely eradicated, but there are certainly uh, ways that survivors can be supported to better deal with us. And Absolutely. I think it's something that really the world owes to them to provide that support. Absolutely. And in, by providing that support and, and being able to provide resources um, to survivors, that's also a way... I would say of honoring, you know, that loss that they had to experience yeah. because of a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to actually talk about that as well, mm-hmm. um, about this failure to intervene yeah. at this time and mm-hmm. um, the implications 
that that had and also the effects in the international community that it caused. So um, just to backtrack a little bit, because when you were 10 years old, you came to this country. Mm -hmm. You were with your uncle, um, but you also met a very special gentleman who I would say because you know I found out you met him at 16 yeah. it seems like that that could have been a pivotal moment in your life because that's still an age where you're processing you're still trying to learn and cope mm-hmm. and um you know David Gertzman was mm-hmm. his name so he was a survivor of the holocaust yes. i'm sure that was a very strong connection that mm-hmm. you guys could could have you know over that experience shared experience mm-hmm. um can you tell us about your relationship with David mm-hmm. and when you met him um, and the impact that that had in you now, you know, possibly finding your purpose mm-hmm. um, in life due to that, that relationship. Yeah, yeah. So I met David when I was 16, as you said. I was a sophomore in high school in Queens Village, New York. And uh, I was at a point in my life where I had been living in this country for several years, but I was still struggling to come to terms with my experience. Um, because I also recognize that, you know, with my classmates, my fellow 16-year-old classmates, they had no idea about what had happened in Rwanda. In fact, they didn't even know where Rwanda was. Mm -hmm. I had never shared my experiences. So they knew that I was an orphan from somewhere in Africa. That was was about the nature of of what they knew. And um, my classmates and I, we had the opportunity to read a book called Night by Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor and um, a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And we read this book, Night. And after we read Night, my teacher, Miss uh, Elisa Goldstein, had the wisdom to try and find a Holocaust survivor who could come to the classroom mm-hmm. because she understood that it's one thing to read about what happened in a book. It's another thing to actually have a survivor come. She understood the impact that having a survivor will have on us. And uh, you know, uh, my classmates and I. And David came and he described his experience during the Holocaust. He talked about being a child prior to the Holocaust with, with parents, with siblings, with um, relatives, with goals and dreams, and how that was taken away from him, you know, in a process that was very f- similar to what happened in Rwanda, mm-hmm. you know, the deprivation of, 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 of his rights and other Jews uh, prior to the genocide, the dehumanization of, of, of Jews prior to the actual Holocaust happening. And I remember that in a, while you're listening to him, in addition to being one of the classmates who was, you know, weeping as he described his story and his loss and his suffering, I saw some similarities between what had happened to him. Although he was talking about Holocaust that happened decades before the 1994 genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda, the similarities in the process of the Holocaust and genocide was striking. Uh, and after the, he shared his story, uh, we wrote thank you notes to him, and in my thank you notes, I happened to mention that I was a survivor from Rwanda. I shared my experience briefly. I never expected that I would hear from him because he get he at that time he was getting hundreds of letters. He was going to schools all over New York City, all over this country, and speaking. So I never knew that, you know, I would never expected a response. But a couple weeks later, he wrote to me and he said he was very moved by my story and he wanted to meet. And long story short, a few weeks later, we met at my uncle's house. And David is really the person who inspired me to share my story for the first time, starting with my own uh, classmates, my own uh, my own high school. He's the one who really, I felt at that point that I wanted to do something to honor my family mm-hmm. and also to do my part in preventing future genocide. Yeah. And I think David really came into my life at a, at a time when I was looking 
for that opportunity and mm-hmm. he's the one who inspired me I felt that if he could you know he could be doing the educational work that he was doing you know as difficult as it was you know I had to try too so David and I from 2001 when I met him until 2012 when he passed away uh, him and I traveled all this country speaking at numerous high schools middle schools colleges you know synagogues churches and our mission was the same to uh, tell the story educate people about the crime of genocide and tell them again what had happened to our families but even more importantly to educate particularly young kids and mm-hmm. the future leaders of this country about mm-hmm. the dangers of racism mm-hmm. about the dangers of anti-semitism about the dangers of uh, xenophobia and all forms of extremism mm-hmm. because we would tell these young people that although God forbid you ever find yourself in an environment that has a genocide the genocide happens because racism and anti-semitism and uh, xenophobia and all forms of extremism Genocide happens when those things are allowed to flourish okay. and they are, they are encouraged and you have a government that benefits from that type of divisive uh, you know, uh, politics. So that was our mission and that was you know, really what David and I uh, did. And I remember that before he passed away in 2012, I really, I promised him that, and it was a difficult time for me when he died because I always felt like it was really the biggest loss that I suffered since losing my own family in, in the genocide because he had become not only like a mentor but he was a friend and his uh, family became my family even now we are still in touch uh, obviously I actually saw his wife uh, earlier this week and I'm in touch with his daughter and his son and, 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 and uh, their children so his family became my family because again both of us recognize that genocide is not something that knows boundaries or borders it's something that can happen anywhere okay. and to anyone yeah. given the right condition and that's why it's important that to this day whether we are white or black or Jewish or Christian this is something that we could we should be concerned about because history shows that genocide has happened you know in Europe in South America in in, in, in Africa it's something that can happen so we all have the responsibility to try to create societies where diversity uh, is not adversity as David used to say where the diversity human diversity is seen as an asset mm-hmm. not something that should be used by political leaders to uh, manipulate and to mm-hmm. divide and to you know, carry out a mass murder of any group of, of people. Absolutely. And, you know, you a powerful quote that you say is that genocide, and you say this a lot, genocide does not happen overnight, right? Yes. And I know you've been, you've been mentioning this in, um, earlier already in this interview about how, you know, we have to start intervening. We have mm-hmm. to start taking action when people are being dehumanized. Yes. Right? And you gave the examples in the genocide of Rwanda mm-hmm. before the genocide occurred where Tutsis were being called cockroaches and yeah. they were being depicted as the lesser mm-hmm. um, species. Yes. Um, you know, they were called snakes. They needed yeah. to be exterminated. Mm-hmm. And that also caused into attention, and that's another, you know, powerful note, thing to note about the media, how mm-hmm. it played a role a strong, strong role. I mean, even nowadays, it's just yeah. so powerful in influencing people. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm really curious because of all of these things that are playing a part. It's like so many things that are that are causing and encouraging this sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. What are some methods of intervention? Like what are some things we need to focus on mm-hmm. um, as a society mm-hmm. and be against mm-hmm. to combat Mm-hmm. this sort of behavior towards mm-hmm. races, yeah. other races, you mm-hmm. know, be prejudices that we may have mm-hmm. uh, against people, mm-hmm. um, even on something that's on a smaller level. Like, yeah. what are things that we need to be aware of, we need to be accepting of, to create 
a better society that's more accepting mm-hmm. and to avoid this risk of, of genocide mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, you know, the first thing we need to understand again is to understand that genocide doesn't happen overnight, mm-hmm. as, as, as you said. It's, it's a process. And um, it happens when, you know, one group of people is portrayed as lesser than whether they are, that's because of their ethnicity in the case of Rwanda, whether because it's uh, their race or their religion. So I think what we need to do is whenever, and this usually happens, initially it begins from the, 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 the political leaders. They are mm-hmm. the ones who introduce this idea that certain people, because of their race, because of their religion, are lesser than and they are the enemy. They make them the enemy of the, the state, the enemy of the people. So I think whenever we see a leader or anybody say to us that these people, because where they come from, they are criminals or they are not to be trusted. Like even, I can talk about even some of the things that have been happening in this country, US, right? We have a lot of xenophobia. We've Mm -hmm. had, you know, anti-Muslim movements where they said, okay, all Muslims are terrorists. Is that true? Of course not. Or all Mexicans are criminals. This is what's being said in these the media. Are, these are examples. Uh, these are examples. Or you talk about human beings as if uh, they are some kind of animals. So you say the immigrants are coming to like infest our country. People don't infest. Cockroaches infest. You know, people don't infest. So whenever we hear mm. this type of dehumanization, mm-hmm. this type of portrayal of one group of people, an entire group of people, because I always say that it's important for us to realize, and I don't know, it boggles in my mind that people don't, see this there's no group of human beings where everybody's a criminal everybody's this criminals exist in all races in all religions so to depict you know an entire country or an entire group of people as lesser than that's problematic and i think as soon as we see that whether it's in our in our media whether it's in in our leaders whether it's in our in in our school whether it's in our in our churches we need to speak up yeah because that's again that's how genocide happen when Mm. people are allowed to be the you know we allow people to deprive rights and then slowly we start seeing them as 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 cockroaches that need to be exterminated so i think the best way to uh to, to fight genocide and to create societies where there is tolerance is really to identify these things mm-hmm. and to also the importance of recognizing that because sometimes you hear somebody say something in a media and people will say well he's just, this, these are just words so the other thing I always say when I speak is that for us to realize that words have power particularly when they come from positions of authority words have power words have powers to have the power to heal or to bring a community together and they have the power to divide a community. Mm-hmm. So particularly when they come from a president or mm-hmm. you know other high officials, we need to pay attention. We need to make sure that we are supporting leaders, political leaders, communal leaders that understand that, again, diversity is an asset to any community, to any country. Because at the end of the day, the more diversity we have, the more contributions Absolutely. that we have. And I think that's very important also yes. to, to understand. Because when you understand that, and when you understand that, again, not there's no one group of human beings that's all bad, you, you really recognize that you can easily identify yeah. this type of divisive language. And when, when we hear it, we have to speak up, mm-hmm. whether it's through protests, whether it's through writing letters, mm-hmm. and certainly with, you know, with, with our, we have, when we vote, again, yes. we need to vote for people, especially, you know, we live in New York City, and we're conducting this interview in New York City, and New York City is one of the most diverse. Yes. This is why I love living here. It's very true. I've been living here for all these years. This is a, a city where you see people from all over. Yeah. 
And I, f- I always say there's no better place to teach appreciation for diversity than this. But mm-hmm. even here, we are often hearing about hate crimes. Yeah. Hate crimes have been on a rise all over this country. People are being targeted because what they see in the media. They are being targeted because it's for because of where they come from. And so whenever we talk about genocide, it's important for people to recognize that we're not just talking about something that happened far away yeah. in Africa. We're talking about something that is a danger to any society. Yeah. And we need to start early. And we need to teach our children about Absolutely. these dangers. You know? And the thing was that what we were talking about when it comes to the genocide, it started with dehumanizing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are lessons that we as an international community were learning from mm-hmm. these events here in this society it's happening you know dehumanizing people Mm -hmm. and being racist and having these prejudices and outcasting Mm -hmm. groups of people Mm -hmm. and that needs to be looked at and you know you brought a very important point about it's on an individual basis everybody has the responsibility to identify Mm -hmm. where these leaders or these people in authority are saying things Mm -hmm. that are not right that are not going to lead us towards a more united and a more accepting and diverse society yes you know and and also you were mentioning so speaking up Mm -hmm. right so speaking Mm -hmm. up writing letters Mm -hmm. doing protests Mm -hmm. um voting for the right leaders leaders, and also since media is so powerful Mm -hmm. oh yes i'd say media platforms that are actually out there spreading truth and acceptance and a more loving approach to to other individuals yes you know and so i think that's very very powerful and you mentioned also about the 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 role of Mm -hmm. early education yeah early education i mean Mm -hmm. can you speak to me because i know you're speaking at schools yes right and Mm -hmm. so what is the role that early education plays in teaching children right Mm -hmm. teaching children that are our future leaders leaders, right about accept or about valuing human rights Mm -hmm. and respecting the um, dignity of other people yeah yeah Uh, education plays a critical role Um, I know David you know the Holocaust survivor who inspired me as I mentioned he used to say that um, something that always uh, struck with me and something that I often repeat he used to say that in a world where we talk so much about weapons of mass destruction we need to also talk more even more about weapons of mass instruction Mm -hmm. and he would talk about lectures in schools he would talk about books he would talk about uh, exhibits so him and I really understood and still understand the the critical role that education plays Mm -hmm. in preventing genocide I think that if we are to create societies where diversity is seen as uh, as an asset is not adversity as he used to say we need to be teaching our children more than uh, math and science and technology and all the subjects that they learn in school we need to teach them about peaceful coexistence we need to teach them about the dangers of racism anti-semitism all type of extremism we need to in this sort need to start like early age mm-hmm. obviously it has to be appropriate for each age you know mm-hmm. i'm not saying that you know i go to you know elementary school kids or in daycares and talk about you know genocide i don't do that actually the youngest uh, students i usually talk to about genocide is middle school students but even before middle school there are a lot of things that can be taught to kids early on to appreciate diversity and even as parents you know we have responsibility to make sure that our kids are exposed 
you know, because expo- exposure is also very important. A lot of these things happen because of ignorance. If somebody comes to you and says, all Jews, all Jews are like this, all Muslims are like this, all Mexicans are like this, and you have never had a Mexican friend or a Jewish friend, you are more easily susceptible to believing those stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But if you have actually been exposed and you have a friend in these communities, you're going to say, no, I have a great friend. She's not this or he's not this. So as parents, also, we have responsibility to make sure that our kids are exposed to, to diverse people and to recognize that, you know, the humanity in all of us, that we have more in common than we have differences and that our differences are something that should be seen as an asset. So for me, education is something that should really be across the board. This is why I'm always supporting genocide and Holocaust um, and really tolerance workshops and education being part of the, the curriculums. But you'd be surprised how many schools, like New York does very good and you know uh, New Jersey does very good, but there are some states, m- many states where Holocaust and genocide education is not part of the curriculum. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's a very dangerous thing. I think that's some, this is something, again, that should be taught in school across the board. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's really gonna help us create future leaders who understand that diversity is an asset is it's something that should be embraced and leaders who understand that when we hear people being dehumanized or even worse being murdered because of who they are because of what they believe that we have the responsibility as human beings to intervene and to go and and protect them because mm-hmm. uh because I think in this day, it's the right thing to do. Uh, and I, I always say now it's becoming, now only is it a moral responsibility because it's a, it's, it's a practical. Uh, because, you know, as Martin Luther King, one of his saying, he always said that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I really believe it. If mm-hmm. you don't prevent injustice when it's happening in Syria or in Rwanda, it makes it more likely that that injustice is going to be uh, our own doorstep. So yeah. we have not only... Um, the more responsible, we have practical responsibility, especially now in a world that we're living now that's becoming very uh, interconnected. Absolutely. You know, we've been having this refugee crisis. I think for the first time, Americans understood that, yeah, we can't just say, like, you know, these things are in Syria and so forth. You know, everything has implications for us. And I think it's, uh, again, for me, even the more responsibility is enough, but we have practical reasons to, uh, to intervene. Yeah. It was the right thing to do because a lot of these things happen because of the silence and the indifference of, of, of uh, powerful countries. Because yeah. in, with the genocide uh, in Rwanda, it wasn't because people didn't know. People knew. People knew. But people didn't, you know, the Security Council, they received yeah. messages every day from the head of the Absolutely. UN peacekeeping mission mm-hmm. that genocide was about to begin. And Rwanda is a tiny country. People mm-hmm. said they didn't even have to send troops. They could have cut the wires of the media that was advertising where Tutsis were hiding or calling Tutsis um, cockroaches. So there was so many things that... Uh, the, the UN Security Council, countries making up the UN Security Council, other countries could have done to prevent genocide or to intervene. Mm-hmm. But there was this indifference because we still live in a world where people also feel that if something is happening in a country where we have no economic ties, for example, that it's not our business. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we really start recognizing that preventing genocide anyway is something that is in, 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 in our interest mm-hmm. as, as a society and as a human beings and... It's something that's going to get us where we to the kind of societies that where we want to live in and where we want to to live our children with. 
Yes. You know, a very interesting thing I was learning about when it came to the genocide in Rwanda, that it's no, it was known as the preventable mm-hmm. genocide mm-hmm. because of the things that you were mentioning, mm-hmm. that there were faxes being sent to yeah. um, the United States, to the UN, saying, mm-hmm. hey, this is something that's that's starting to escalate. Yes. Right? There, there may be a genocide that's happening, and all of this hatred and propaganda against mm-hmm. the Tutsis are occurring. Yeah. And... There was a failure in the international community to intervene, mm-hmm. right? And so this is what you were talking about. Super important to highlight what you were talking about, about these leaders that are being placed in their positions mm-hmm. that have a desire to help other individuals who are yeah. experiencing attack on their uh, human rights. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about how was it specifically that um, the international community failed to intervene? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that, you know, I have to say that as a survivor, one of the most difficult things that I had to really deal with was the recognition that um, powerful countries like the U.S. and, you know, France and Belgium and U.K. and so forth, who had the means to have prevented genocide, did not do so. Uh, because initially, I always tell people that during those 100 days of genocide, as we were being hunted, as we were being, uh, witnessing our families being murdered simply because of who they um uh, they were, I always, we, all of us who live to see another day, we always said there's no way this type of crime is going to continue. Certainly somebody from outside of Rwanda, either our own government is going to come to its senses and realize the, uh, you know, the, the crimes that it's committing, or certainly an outside country is going to hear about it. And for me, perhaps because I was young and I was a child and I was naive, but at that time I believed that if anybody heard about it, who had the means to do something about it, that they would have done something about it. So coming to U.S. and learning, you know, I, I did a lot of research about the genocide and how it happened as, as an adult to recognize that all these faxes and, and uh, telephone calls had been made to the U.N. Security Council, which is made up of many, many powerful countries, including our own country here, U.S., had been receiving these faxes prior to the genocide. The head of the the UN peacekeeping mission, his name is Romeo Delayer, mm-hmm. he wrote a book called Shake Hands, Shake Hands with the Devil. Mm-hmm. And in that book, he talks about the many cables that he sent to the UN prior to the genocide, saying that uh, lists of Tutsis who are going to be killed are being drafted, saying that he discovered um, boxes of machetes that had been imported from China, not for agricultural use, but from genocide, talking about the training of Hutu youth, that he was seeing youth who were being trained to carry out uh, the genocide. So he was giving them warnings. This was a time to intervene, but there was no intervention. Uh, as to why they didn't intervene, it certainly was, wasn't for the lack of warnings, and it certainly wasn't for the lack of the means to intervene. I think there was really this indifference, the same type of indifference that, and silence that took place during the Holocaust and other genocides that happened before uh, the genocide against Tutsi. And it comes down to the fact, again, that we still live in a, in, in a world where people feel that if a genocide is going on in a country like Rwanda, which had no, where they didn't have like economic ties or natural resources and things, that it's okay. And I think part of genocide prevention really is going to require this uh, change of consciousness and shift in how we value human life. We have to come to a place where we understand that protecting human life from this crime, the greatest crime, protecting human life from uh, genocide, is should be the top priority. 
We shouldn't be asking whether we have an economic relationship with our country, whether that country has oil, whether that country has, you know, as long as we're still doing those type of calculations, you know, these things are going to continue to happen. But once we realize that genocide is a threat that we should be fighting, irrespective of where it is, that leaders should be held accountable when they carry out extermination plans of their own citizens. Until we come to that place, mentally and morally, There's these much. things will continue to happen. Yeah, so part of that is really recognizing and educating people about the dangers of being silent and the mm-hmm. dangers of uh, indifference in, in, in the presence of, of, of this crime. Wow, that's incredible. And you, I remember in a call, and I actually um, saved this quote from you, that where you said, there is perversion when protecting natural resources is more important than protecting human lives. Yeah. And that's yeah. the sad truth of the matter. And yeah. to even try to wrap your head around the fact that, or it was the, the yeah. reason why yeah. the international community did not get involved in trying to protect Rwanda, mm-hmm. and it was simply because there weren't there was no benefit. Yeah. There was that, no economic mind, benefit. There's no benefit. People could be killed. There was there was nothing to gain. And that kind of mindset is very... It's hard for me to understand. And it's dangerous. Honestly. And it's a dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And we need to calculate future leaders who are going to take measures to intervene in such in such situations. And it's to really raise the value and to really set the value in human life and to say yes. this this is not negotiable. This, yeah. this is not negotiable. Yeah. This needs to be addressed and this needs to be resolved and it needs to be a standard for everybody who's in the position of authority or anybody in the position of leadership. Yes, it's in, it's in our interest. Obama, when he was in office, he uh, created this thing called uh, Atrocity Prevention Board. And uh, I remember, you know, one of the things that he said, as Americans, speaking to Americans, that we have to recognize that preventing genocide is in our national interest. Because whenever these things happen, people always say, is it in our national interest? Yes, it is. That should never be a question. Mm-hmm. When people are being targeted and dehumanized and murdered simply because of their race and their religion, we all need to speak up. Absolutely. Because that's, some, that's not something that should be tolerated in this day and age. So we need to get there, you know, mentally and, and, and morally, really to understand that that's the only way that we can create a world free of, uh, uh, free of genocide. With your organization for the Genocide Survivors Foundation, mm-hmm. you speak about genocide prevention, everything yes. that we've addressed. Mm-hmm. This is your focus, one of the two focuses. Yes. The other focus is on helping survivors yes, and helping them with the resources and the support that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us about the needs of survivors mm-hmm. and how we can help them and how you guys are helping them mm-hmm. to, to cope and to try to to thrive, you know, mm-hmm. find that spark in their life again Yeah, to continue. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the reason why I started uh, Genocide Survivors Foundation a few years ago was uh, to continue, as, uh, as you said, the work that I had been doing as an individual to educate people about the crime of genocide and to try to create a world where diversity is, you know, is embraced and is seen as an asset. But the, other sec- the second part was to help survivors. I understood that, and I still understand that I'm one of the lucky survivors in that I was able to leave Rwanda after the genocide and had an uncle who brought me here. Yes, I had my own traumas and I still have my own traumas, but I had the opportunity to be able to go to school, um, to be able to go to college, to be able to go to law school, to be able to live in a place where I don't have to feel that uh, you know, to, that I'm living next door to people who killed my families because this is also the situation in Rwanda is that there were so many 
uh, such a large participation by the Hutu civilians that the survivors who live in Rwanda live next door to people who kill their families or mm-hmm. people who turn them away during the genocide. So when they go to church, when they go to draw a, a water from the nearby well, they will see people who kill their family. And even that, living in that environment, to me, is traumatizing because every day you're reminded. Um, so I have always considered myself uh, very fortunate in that I've had the opportunities that I've had. And I always believe that with uh, opportunities and with privileges comes responsibility. I really believe that when we are blessed with certain things, we have responsibility to try and, and, and give back. So I also understood that because you know I go to Rwanda often and I meet survivors. You know Some of them have progressed well and they are doing well with their families. Again. When I say doing well, all of us, you know, we live with trauma that we're going to take to our grave. There's never going to come a place where, like, everything's okay. Everything mm-hmm. will never be okay. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of minimizing and being able to cope and to, and, and to thrive. But there are also survivors who still lack basic necessities, who don't have proper housing, who don't have uh, opportunities to pursue higher education. There are women who are raped during the genocide girls, not just women, they are girls who were raped when they were, you know, uh, 14, like Juan Soleil, who you will be interviewing later, or even younger, who live with the consequences of the genocide. Every day they're reminded of the genocide. Um, so there's, there's trauma, there's economical needs, there are needs in terms of education. And I started Genocide uh, Survivors Foundation uh, in an effort to try and address some of those needs. So we res- we are 501c3, uh, mm-hmm. non-profit organization, so all donations that mm-hmm. are given to Genocide Survivors Foundation are tax deductible. And we try to address survivors' needs in a comprehensive way. So we didn't want to just, I didn't want us to just focus on education or just focus on a trauma or just focus on economic needs because again, I understood that the needs of survivors are comprehensive and they, they require comprehensive services. Mm-hmm. So we provide, we raise money to provide scholarships for survivors to go to uh, universities or those who are not able to go to universities because of, you know, they dropped out of school because of trauma. We uh, raise money to help them pursue vocational training or tr- go to trade school and learn a skill that they can use to support themselves and their families. We also uh, try to raise money to provide support for income generating activities. So there are many survivors who have many great business ideas and great income generating activities, but they need seed funding. So that's one of the things that we try to help. Uh, with the trauma, uh, I know uh, at the conference where you and I met, we talked about the, uh, the women survivors retreat, which mm-hmm. Lilian runs. And that's tra- an effort to, to, to address some of the trauma, exactly. particularly with the women who were raped during the genocide and mm-hmm. live with uh, HIV and AIDS or you know, live with all types of consequences. Children. Raising children who yeah. are born as way. a result of that rape. Uh, mm-hmm. That's another trauma for them and for those children who also grow up and learn about the nature of their birth. So we try to provide support. Genocide Survivors Foundation provides educational support, economic support, but also social services, exactly. including mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. And we are a small organization, so I'm working very hard to try to get support. Um, so for anybody who's listening, please visit our website. It's genocidesurvivorsfoundation.org. And... Uh, I really believe, as I said when we first met, that one of the best ways that we can honor uh, the memory of people who have been murdered uh, in the genocide, in addition to educating people about the crime of genocide in an effort to prevent genocide, the other best way we can honor them is making sure that 
the widows and the orphans that they left behind are taken care of and allowed to not only keep surviving but to thrive because whenever here I hear you know leaders make apologies about what happened I'm, I'm always saying yes it's good to, to to have that apology and that acknowledgement but real apology comes when you really back up back that apology with services exactly. because it's been it's going to be 26 years since the genocide uh, this April, but the consequences of genocide are still a daily reality for survivors. And I think that as a community, and I'm always you know, calling on good-hearted human beings, that the best way we can honor the victims is making sure that the survivors are getting the support that they need. I personally feel like the world owes that to them. Um, and I feel that as a survivor, I have a responsibility to really advocate for them and make sure that people understand that those needs are still there. That the mm-hmm. genocide ended, but the consequences are still a daily reality. Absolutely. And again, we can't eradicate the consequences, but we yeah. can at least minimize them Absolutely. through services. Yes, and you know, 25 years later, and these consequences are still very, very, very clearly seen. Yeah. And also in part, you know, how was a country left after mm-hmm. the genocide, right? Yeah. With so many experiencing trauma mm-hmm. and just having a very difficult time mm-hmm. picking themselves up yeah. and continuing, you know, going back to school, mm-hmm. you know, working, mm-hmm. uh, just finding that, that will to live mm-hmm. is very, very hard now. And so, so yeah. many people, you know, we talked, I heard about this in, in the event, many people think, oh, 25 years later, there should be fine. Everything yeah, should everything be okay. Should be good. Yeah. But and it's not, that's not the case. That's not the case. There's been a lot of progress in Rwanda, I have to say. You know, Rwanda is now a secure country. It's one of the biggest uh, tourist destinations for, you know, Americans and Europeans and so forth. So there's been a lot of progress, which cannot be denied. But the challenge is also there. And for me, if you truly understand what genocide is, it's not just the destruction of, of a people, it's the destruction of instru- infrastructure and the destruction of relationship, the destruction of the social fabric. Mm-hmm. Because to live with the neighbors and to experience a betrayal Absolutely. and then to then again have to live with those neighbors, Absolutely. that takes a lot. Yeah. That takes generations to Absolutely. repair. You know, yeah. that type of trust. So the challenges are there. The challenges are con- continue to be there. But like I think that uh, certainly with enough uh, services mm-hmm. that things can be even more better. And I really think that survivors have a, a key role to play in prevention too. So if they're able to rebuild their lives and they're able to come and be able to share their experiences like I'm sharing you now, it's just going to it's gonna better help the world understand what genocide is and how it can best be uh, prevented. Absolutely. And so... When it comes to the work, and I, we couldn't talk about that today, perhaps on another interview, you also have a lot of informa- knowledge on reconciliation mm-hmm. and also on the justice mm-hmm. that needs to be served yes. for those that are still at large that yeah. were involved in the killings. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, your neighbors. Right? <laughs> yeah. like, and also then the approach to forgiveness, you know, yeah. community forgiveness. Like, mm-hmm. So there are a lot of other dynamics we weren't able to talk about, but I'm happy that we were able to talk about the work that you're doing, yeah. the importance of, of accepting others and respecting the human rights yeah. and diversity and embracing that yeah. and valuing that and the, the importance of valuing it, you know, just mm-hmm. f- from the lessons that we are receiving from what happens in genocide and how it begins yeah and so very happy that you were able to come and educate us in such a deep level and definitely to everyone listening when it comes to donating if you wanted to donate to genocidesurvivorsfoundation.org i will 
place a link in the show notes and please show your support to be able to provide the the resources and the support that these survivors need to receive the psychological, the, the mental, the physical, economic support in order for them to be able to continue their lives and to thrive uh, just like any other human deserves to be able to do in their life. And uh, so I'll make sure to provide that link in the show notes. I want to thank you so much for being here today. And my final question is, when it comes to your mission now in life, like what your drive and your dream moving forward, Mm -hmm. what is that for you? Yeah, um, you know, preventing genocide and supporting survivors certainly has been, um, it's my passion. I believe it's uh, my reason to be. It's Mm -hmm. it's part of the reason that I'm here, part of the reason that I survived. As I mentioned earlier, when you survive, you say, why me? But now I know having survived, I do have that responsibility to make sure that, to do my part in making sure that what happened to me as a child of nine is not something that is continue continues to be tolerated mm-hmm. and to also make sure that survivors uh, so my hope and, and and my dream is that through my efforts and the many efforts that are, are uh, going on by individuals and organizations and institutions is that we can create a world my ideal world where again diversity is not adversity where we can peacefully coexist with human beings who have a different religion, who look different from us, and but really where we come to recognize that as human beings, we have more in common than we have differences, and that there is no human being whose life or whose value is lesser, is lesser than another, mm-hmm. um, that we all desire the same things, and that is to be able to live in a country or in a society in a world where we're not discriminate against or persecuted, where we are allowed to grow and for our dreams and, and goals to be realized. So, so that is my hope, that I can contribute to bringing about such, uh, such reality. And it's, it's some, certainly something that I'm continuing to work on and to push for as long as I'm alive. It's mm-hmm. not really something that I'm doing you know, right now and I'm going to abandon. For as long as I'm alive, I'm going to continue to call on people to be more tolerant and to be more respecting and appreciating of diversity that is our strength and not something that should be used to to divide us beautiful that was such an honorable honorable dream and i look forward to seeing your journey thank you seeing that progress that is being made as a society right to make this happen because it's not just about the work that you're trying to do it is about others coming together and having that happen as a united society. Yes, and for us, one of the things, it's, it's, it's very easy to be overwhelmed with all the things that are going on around the world, but I always tell all my audiences, the, 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 the individual responsibility, that all of us feel that we have a responsibility in creating a better world. Absolutely. We have a responsibility to create uh, a world that we can be proud of mm-hmm. when we are no longer here, that yeah. we can live a better world for our children and grandchildren mm-hmm. uh, than the one that we, that we found. Yes. I think that really having that sense of responsibility as individuals to do your part. You're not being asked to solve all the problems of the world, but as long as each of us really takes on an issue in an effort to change the world, I think, like you said, it's going to take not only my efforts or your efforts, but the the efforts of all of us as as, uh, collectively, as as individuals. So really emphasizing that 
individual responsibility that we should really use our lives in a way that not only betters us as individuals or our immediate relatives, but in a way that betters the country and the world at large. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story and your mission in life and the work that you're currently doing. And I am very honored to have had the opportunity to interview you and have this platform as in another platform for you to share your story on. Thank you for having me and thank you for the great work that you are doing. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and feel inspired and would like to be a part of the Relentless Minds community, you can join the movement for change on Instagram and Twitter. We would also love to know how your experience has been as a listener. If you haven't yet, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next week for another powerful story. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.